0: Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us in prayer earlier, praying for the team that is about to go. Your uh, prayers and support mean the world, so thank you for supporting us in that way. Well, what's kind of, I've always found it odd is that in... In my mind, especially going to school, summer seemed to start when school ended at the beginning of June. But technically, in our calendars, the first day of summer was actually just this past week. And so since we're now officially in summer, we're going to start a new summer sermon series, which we're calling Summer Reading with the Word. And kind of the thought process behind this is during summer, it's often a time, many of us take a little bit of time to slow down. Maybe we go on vacation, maybe we just take a a break, maybe workload goes down as the the heat gets higher. I know it's not true for everyone, but many people go on vacation during the summer and it's also time that many take to, to rediscover the joy of reading of maybe, whether it's going to the beach or going somewhere else, opening a good book and getting lost in reading. If you're in school, you probably have a summer reading assignment coming up, or maybe your parents have you signed up for some type of reading challenge at a library or something like that, or maybe you're just taking time to read for fun. And in the same way, our goal in this sermon series is to give you joy in reading God's Word. And so for this series, as we preach through this part of Scripture, imagine yourself on a beach or somewhere you find relaxing, opening up the gift of God's Word. Our guide this summer is going to be the passage Psalm 119, the 119th Psalm. And this week we're going to start with Psalm 119 verses 1 through 16. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 119, 1 through 16. If you want to use that blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 606. We'll also put the words up. On the screen. And once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along as I read our passage for today, Psalm 119. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Psalm 119, starting in verse 1. The author says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Verse 13, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Lord, this morning and this summer, would you give us joy and delight in looking at your word? And God, may that joy and delight lead us to walk in your word, to walk closer to you, to live as you have called us to live. Lord, bring about that change in our lives by leading us to store up your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you, that we might live for you. Please, God, build in us the delight and joy in your word. Thank you that we can have delight and joy because your word is not a burden weighing us down, but it is a way we know you, a way we understand who you are. And it's in your word that we discover the truth about your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see him clearer as we look at your word today. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, since this is our first time looking at this chapter, let's take a few minutes to talk about where we are in Scripture. We're in the Psalms. The Psalms, it's the longest book of the Bible. It's the song book of the ancient Israelites and the church today. It is full of praise to God. But what's happening here, this particular psalm, Psalm 119? Well, there's many ways that we could describe it, but if you're using the outline, I think a good way to understand it is that it is a love song about God's law. A love song about God's law. i will talk more about that as we go forward. We, we just studied the book of Hebrews, and like the book of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who wrote this particular psalm. Some people attribute all the psalms to David, but it doesn't tell us exactly who wrote this one. It seems the person is likely a king. They speak about some royal terms as we'll go throughout it. So it could have been David, but we, we don't know exactly who wrote it. What we do know is that it is the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. In fact, this one psalm, this one chapter is longer than many books in the Bible. And what's so fascinating about it is it's a very carefully structured psalm or poem. It's an acrostic. And an acrostic, you may remember that from school, that's where each line or each group starts with a particular letter of the alphabet. And so maybe your first line is A, then B, then C, etc. But this the Bible wasn't written in English, it was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, there are 22 letters of the alphabet. So in this psalm, you have one section for each of the 22 letters, and each section has eight lines, eight stanzas that all start with the same letter, and then it moves on to another one. Now, I realize we probably don't Most of us probably don't read, speak Hebrew. I took a little bit, and I I took a picture in my Hebrew Bible. It it may be a little hard to see, but in Hebrew, you read from right to left. And if you look way up top, if you can see it a little bit, you'll notice that on the right, the first three have the same letter. That's the Hebrew Aleph, kind of like their A. And that's, if you see the numbers, I know it may be hard to see, but it says 6, 7, 8. That's verses 6, 7, and 8. And then verses 9 through 16, if you look at the very right, there's the same letter for all eight of those, and that's, that's Beth, the B. And then it changes for the next verses. And that's what it looks like if you flip through the Bible. You look on the right, and it's the same letter for eight verses. Now, we miss that in English, but that, that's the structure that the author is writing with. And if you're someone who likes to plan ahead, you can even do the math here. There's 22 Hebrew letters. It looks like Pastor John's talking about two of those sections, so 22 divided by two. Yes, this will be an 11-week series, okay? That's what we're doing as we go through the psalm. And if you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do that, Pastor John. Well, uh, there's one Puritan writer uh, who Pastor Tom really enjoys. I I like reading him as well, named Thomas Manton. He He preached a sermon on every single verse, so that was 176 sermons. So we're doing 11. So count your blessings as we go through God's Word. Okay, but what is this psalm in particular about? Well, as I said, it's a love letter to God's law. It's about God's Word. In this psalm, the author uses at least eight different Hebrew words to describe the Word of God, to praise the Lord for it. And I don't want to get lost in the difference between those particular words. I want to focus on the overall message Because as we'll read through this psalm, we see the love and affection that this psalmist has for God's law, the love that he has for the first five books of the Old Testament. That's his specific focus, but really what he says can apply to all of God's words. He loves God's law. He loves God's word. But as we read, we'll also notice something else. There's little hints in here that not everything's right in this psalmist's life. There's hints of mourning and lament that he's dealing with a lot of struggles even as he writes this song of praise. It kind of reminds me of how we cling to the people and the things we love in difficult times. If I've had a particularly hard day, I can't wait to go home and to hug my wife, to hug my daughter. Well, in the same way, this psalmist, he loves God's word. And in the midst of his difficult times, he wants to cling even closer to it. But the main point we see throughout this psalm is what God is like. As the psalmist rejoices in God's word, we understand the Lord's character. We see how God loves and guides his people through his word. And as we learn about God, then we also learn how we should live. In the New Testament, it says that all Scripture, including Psalm 119, is breathed out by God. It's profitable, it's good for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. That the man or the woman of God, that we may be complete, that we may be equipped for every good work. So let's dive in. Today, we're looking at the Aleph and the Bet sections, which that's Hebrew, but it's pretty similar to our A and B And this first section helps us by setting our focus for the whole series. The goal of our life should be to walk in God's word, to walk in the word. That's also the the title of the, the sermon today, Walk in the Word. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, blessed are those who are blameless, undefiled people of integrity. And why are they blessed? Because they follow, they walk in the law and the instructions of our Lord. They walk in God's word. I think that's such a beautiful word to talk about what it looks like living for God. Walk is such a, it's just such a great description of our spiritual journey. It's not a run, it's it's, we're walking steadily with our God. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, the holy life is a walk, a steady progress, a quiet advance, a lasting continuance. It's step-by-step, day-by-day, faithfully following God. And that's what it looks like to follow God, is to make those daily decisions pursuing Him. You can think about this in so many different categories of our lives. For example, we may value truth. We may say truth is a great thing, but what does it look like to daily walk and follow God in that? Well, it means we don't lie, and it means we speak the truth when we talk to other people. We may say, well, God's Word tells me to value faithfulness and commitment. Well, how do we live that out? If we're married, we're, we're faithful to our spouse. And whether we are or not, we maintain purity in our thoughts. We seek for our thoughts to honor God and not expose our mind to the explicit, the pornographic, but focus on these are thoughts that honor our Lord. We may say that God's Word values life, the protection of life. As you're all very aware, there was a somewhat, somewhat's not a good word, there was a consequential Supreme Court case this week that we hope has the beautiful result of saving unborn lives. But it does speak to a daily challenge for us now as the church. And that challenge for us is to daily, every day, when we see opportunity to extend love, care, and support, especially to single mothers, to those who are experiencing unplanned pregnancies and to their children. That is the daily call on us in light of what has happened. Following God involves making daily decisions to live for Him. That's what our psalmist speaks to there. He wants to walk with the Lord. But the psalmist also says that this journey is blessed. That's the very first word of the psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. As we walk with God, we experience His favor and joy. And that makes this an exclamation, a shout of joy. The psalmist is so excited that we can be like God. We can follow Him. We can know Him as we walk with Him. We can live as His Word tells us to live. God extends this invitation throughout Scripture. Back in the book of Genesis, God speaks to the man Abram, who would eventually become Abraham. And God appears to him and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, another word that our text uses, that I may make my covenant, my agreement, my relationship between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. That's the blessing he offers there. But a word we see in that text in ours is blameless. The call on us is to live lives that are above reproach. That's another emphasis in scripture. The book of Proverbs says those of a crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. And Psalm 128 says, "Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways." Now, oh, the author's point is that for God's people, happiness, joy, and blessing goes together with holiness, with commitment to God. And those who are wise by God's standards, they discover true happiness. One scholar named Stephen Uel, he says the extent to which we enjoy Him, enjoy God, is contingent on our conformity to Him. I like the C's there. The point is, though, the more we look like God, the more we enjoy God, the more we enjoy His Word and our relationship with Him. And so in that way. Verse 2 adds, blessed are those who keep, obey, and comply with his testimonies, his statutes, his laws. Blessed are those who live under the authority of God's word and those who seek and search for him with all of their heart, with their whole heart. God's blessing, his joy, his favor comes to those who passionately pursue him above everyone and everything else. Now this idea of seeking God, every time I see seek him there, my mind jumps to last year's VBS. And our theme verse last year was Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen, which says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The psalmist is saying that is what he seeks to do. Again, though, his focus here is on obeying God. If we're obeying, keeping God, living, walking in his commands, that's the obedience that we seek after. And we seek it because it makes a difference in our lives. Verse 3 says those who walk in this way do no wrong, do no iniquity or injustice. They do not compromise with evil or go off on their own. No, they walk and follow God's ways and his paths. His word is their compass and their guide. First John 3 says that no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. If we belong to God, we won't keep on sinning because God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning. He has been born of God. If we know God, if we have a relationship with him, then he makes a difference in our lives. We do not keep on pursuing sin. Instead, we see the beauty of God's word. We want to live out what God has said. We respond in gratitude for what God has done for us. Another scholar named John Collins said, by singing and praying this psalm, we're expressing heartfelt admiration for God, the one who has lovingly bestowed this great gift upon his people. And we also fervently yearn for our personal life to reflect the loveliness, the goodness. This offer says the Torah, that first five books, but that loveliness and goodness we can find in all. Of God's Word. Verse 4 adds, and when we walk in obedience to God, and we do it because He has commanded, ordained, charged, and laid down precepts that we should follow, His desire is that we would keep guard and obey His commandments fully and diligently. God expects His people to do what He has said because His words are not suggestions but commands. We can't get away with just half doing what God says. He has told us what it means to follow Him. Then the psalm is going to switch to a personal focus. So here he's been talking about kind of broad things. Now he's going to redirect our energy. What does this look like individually for me to follow after God, to have this heart to seek Him? That's verses 5 through 8. If God expects His people to obey His words, so what? How should I respond? I find it real interesting what the psalmist does here in verse 5. He longs. For this to happen to him he longs that his ways his actions his response to this would be that he would be kept steadfast that he would be established and committed his desires that god would so work in his heart that his steps would be directed to honor god he longs to be faithful and keeping and obeying god's perfect statutes and decrees he wants god i want to follow you perfectly Even as he says that, though, I'm sure he's aware of the reality that that's not going to be fully realized for him in this life. He'll never be perfect at following God, because only one person was perfect at following God. And that's our Savior, Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly. He had a heart that was completely steadfast in keeping God's commands. He's our perfect king, the perfect representative who saved us. And so unlike Jesus, this author knows he isn't perfect, but he still longs to be like the Lord. And the goal I think he's trying to instill, he's reflecting his heart, but what is hammered home over and over again to us, to you and to me, is we should have this heart, this longing to look like God as well. And our hope is as we go through this psalm, that would be built in us, that we long to be like God, but know that we need his help. As Proverbs says, the heart of man plans his ways. We may want to do something, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're dependent on him. And if we know him, we won't be pushed away from him. We can't lose our relationship, but we could shame him by continuing in sin. And verse 6 tells us if we're going to be consistent in following God, then we will not be put to shame then we will not find ourselves in the shame of sin. Again, Charles Spurgeon says sin brings shame. When sin is gone, the reason for being ashamed is banished. If we're pursuing sin, we're walking away from God, then yeah, we will feel shame. We'll feel that sense of separation. But if we're pursuing God, if He's in the process of removing sin from our lives, then shame is gone. But look what our author says. This can only happen when our eyes are fixed on His commandments. It only happens as we consider and look carefully at what God has said. It only happens when we take time to compare our lives to God's Word. When we compare our lives, we see, what does God's Word say? How am I to live? Am I practicing what God has said? If we do that, then we find confidence. 1 John, he says, little children, abide, remain in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have that confidence that we will not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. When Christ comes, we're not like, oh, Jesus, I, I wasn't quite ready for you, I hadn't figured things out. No, because we know he is righteous. And so you may be sure everyone who practice righteousness does what God says, walks in his word, has been born of him. And when that happens, that's a source of praise for us. Verse 7 speaks about this. We learn his rules and judgments, and so we praise and thank him. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. This psalm teaches us to sing God's praises. Following God is not misery, it is a joy. One theologian, Danny Akin, said obedience is not a burden. It's not a life of dullness and drudgery. It's a life of delight, praise, joy, and blessedness. Following God is not grumbling and shuffling along. No, it's a joyful experience if we're following Him, walking with His Word. And so the psalmist ends this section with a commitment and a request. He says, I will keep, I will obey God's statutes and decrees, but please, God, do not utterly forsake and abandon me. He's begging God not to give up on him. Maybe he's going through trial and suffering, but he's keeping his commitment to God. Maybe he's thinking about back at verse 5. He wants his ways to be perfect, but he knows, you know, I keep sinning. I keep going away from God. My commitment is to keep God's rules, but I keep failing. So God, please do not forsake me. He has this heart of humility before God, asking God, I need your mercy. It reminds me of a story Jesus told about a tax collector who knew he was a sinner, so he stood far off from God in the Gospel of Luke. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think in some ways that's what this psalmist is doing here. God, I want to keep your statutes, do what you said, but do not utterly forsake me. Do not reject me when I fail. And friends, he's just expressing concern, but... Let let me give you the hope. Oh, if we know God, if we are his child, if we belong to him, then despite our failures, God will not give up on us. When we sin, he calls us to return, but he will not abandon his people. One writer, Thomas Manton, put it this way about believers. He says, we might fall into the dirt, but we do not wallow in it like swine in the mire. We may fall into sin, when we get a little dirty, messed up, but we don't stay there. We turn to God. He provides a way of escape because He has first provided salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we find grace and mercy. Jesus walked that path of obedience, so we don't need to do it to earn favor with God. Instead, we can follow Him with joy, knowing He's gone before us. He's already cleared all the obstacles out of the way. So let me ask you, whether you're here, whether you're watching online, do you know that grace of God? Do you know Jesus, the one who has made a way, the one who brings you into a saving relationship with him? Has he changed you so that you now walk in the word? Now you may say, yeah, yes, I I believe I know God, but pastor, you're talking about all these things, walking with God general. How exactly am I supposed to do that? How do I do that practically in my life? What does it mean to walk in God's word? Well, I'm glad you asked because our psalmist is going to answer that in the next section of verses. If we know the Lord, there are steps we can take to walk in the word. And the psalmist is going to give us two in particular. He's going to tell us two ways that you can follow after God and live for him are by storing up and delighting in the word. If you store up and delight in the word. We see these in verses 9 through 16. We're going to start by looking at kind of the first half of that, which is storing up the Word or guarding God's Word in our hearts. The psalmist asks in verse 9, how can someone keep their way pure? How can we stay on the path of purity? How can we cleanse our ways? And then he gives us an answer. It happens as we guard, take heed, obey, live according to God's Word. Oh, and this is still true today. Purity, holiness, seeking after God, having a heart that reflects Him, that's extremely important in a world where sin is either celebrated or sin is hidden. We either celebrate sin or we try to hide it, keep it in a corner. But as we all know, what is done in a corner is eventually shouted in the streets. We cannot hide sin forever. This verse is a reminder to us that we need God's word, particularly. I would say if, if we're young so that we do not go astray from God. When seeing this word guarding here, kind of guarding our way by God's word, it, it reminded me of a phrase I used to hear when I was a teenager, and maybe you've used this or you heard it. We sometimes tell young people who may be experiencing relationships the first time, you need to guard your heart. Guard your heart. And what we mean is don't go too fast, get, get too emotionally committed, guard your heart. Well, in life, all of us need to guard our hearts by God's word. We need to guard the place of God's word in our lives. And once again, the psalmist knows the only person who can help him with this is God. So he prays in verse 10. He says, God, I I know that I seek after you. So please do not let me wander. Do not let me stray from your commandments. This is an encouragement that we see throughout scripture about seeking after God and not going away from him. This is kind of an an obscure passage, but I, I really like its emphasis here. There's a prophet named Azariah, and he's speaking to one of the kings of God's people named Asa and the people. And this is what he says. He says, hear me Asa, all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. He says you need to seek after God, call out for his help in living for him. We seek God as well, knowing we can't follow God without his help. This idea of seeking after God, I was reading, it's kind of similar to the idea of keeping a musical instrument in tune. Uh, Let me... Spoil a trick of Sam's trade here. If you ever see him adjusting things on his guitar there, he's trying to keep it in tune. We want to make sure that it makes beautiful music that's pleasing to the ear. In the same way we seek after God, we seek to be in tune with him so that our lives are pleasing to him, that our lives are a beautiful expression of praise to him. If we do this, we find good results even in our own life. Danny Akats said, it's hard to wander from the Lord's commands when you seek him with your whole heart. If we're seeking after God, our motivation, our desire to sin and fall away from him will also fall away. I'm not saying perfectly, completely, but the closer we are to God, the less likely we are to sin. But where's the practical part you've promised me, Pastor? All right, well, finally in verse 11, we get to exactly how do we do this? How do we Follow after God. Well, he tells us, I have stored up your word in my heart. I have hidden, I have treasured God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Now, when he's saying heart, he's not talking about the literal blood pumping organ in our body. No, he's talking about thinking about, pondering, and it seems he's also saying memorizing God's word, knowing it on the inside. And that might be an intimidating concept to you. You may think, oh, I I don't think I can memorize something, Master. I I wasn't that great in school. I, I can't memorize God's Word. And I understand that that skill may work out different ways for different people. We're each gifted in different areas. But all of us memorize something in our lives. There are things that we do memorize. We memorize things that are important, things we care about. Yes, I know we have cell phones now, but there's at least a few phone numbers you probably have memorized. You have to write it down somewhere or put it somewhere else. And yes, we all have GPSs, but there are at least some places you know how to drive to without plugging the directions in the GPS. If you're in the age of kind of the later school years, you're starting college application stuff, or you're, you're into the workforce, then I'm pretty sure you have your social security number memorized, because you certainly have to write that on a lot of things. Beyond that, though, we memorized our interest. We memorized facts about the p- people and things that we care about. As Thomas Manton said, what we value most preciously, we save. Most carefully. If we value something, we save it, we store it up in our minds. Our author's challenge today is that we store up God's word in our hearts and in our lives. Both the Old and New Testament call us to do this. In Psalm 37, it says, The law of God is in his heart, in a follower of God's heart, and so his steps do not slip. The book of Colossians in the New Testament says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That you know God's Word so well that it teaches and admonishes you and one another in all wisdom. That you respond by singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That thankfulness arises out of your heart to God. That's we're called to memorize His Word. And yes, that's easier for some than others, but we can each start small. You can pick a, a small verse. If the only verse you think you can memorize is the shortest one, at least as in our Bibles as they print it, then memorize Jesus wept from John 11 and let that, let that hope remind you that Christ is human like us. We can start small and grow from there. You may say, I'm still not sure about this, Pastor. Why should we do that? What benefit would it be to me to memorize some random words? Well, because if it's in our heart, then we can use it when we need it. Protestant reformer John Calvin put it this way, if we do not imbibe, absorb the doctrine of the word of God, if we're not well acquainted with what scripture says, then Satan will easily surprise and entangle us in his meshes, and his traps. So our true safeguard then lies not in a slender, a light knowledge of God's law and word, not in a careless perusal, a light reading of it. No, our true safeguard is in hiding it deeply in our hearts. That's how we could be safe. Safe from from Satan's traps and schemes, temptation, falling to temptation, to sin. Or to put it a lot shorter in a quote that's attributed to D.L. Moody, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. God has given us his word. The reason we memorize it is so that we live God, that we do not rebel against him. And knowing how very important this is, the psalmist in verse 12 has a praise for God and then he asks for help. His praise is, blessed are you, Lord, teach me your statutes. God, you are the source of all joy. You need nothing. You graciously share with us, your people, and you help us. So we're to ask him to teach us. God, help me to bring your word into my heart. God's not sitting up there going, you need to do this. I'm waiting for you to do this. No, no, no. ask God, God, help me to memorize, to know your word, to store it up in my heart and in my life. Psalm 25 says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. You're not alone in this. You can pray and ask God's help to know his word better. So yes, we know his word so we don't fall into sin, but We don't just know God's Word so we have it in the back so it's ready. Memorizing the Bible is not like having an extra set of plates and silverware that you can bring out when the guests come. It's there, but most of the time it just sits back there. No, no, we memorize it, we know it so that we would delight in it as well. We're not only called to store up God's Word, but to delight in the Word, to find joy in this Word. Since he knows the word, the the psalmist says in verse 13 that he declares, recounts, recites, he tells others of God's rules and judgments. He praises God and his word to others. Another place we see this is in Psalm 40. The author says, I have told the good news of deliverance in the great congregation. I've not restrained my lips, as you know, Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. No, he spoke, he declared, this is who God is, what he says and what he has done. And why does he do this? Our passage tells us in verse 14, because he says, in the way, God, of your testimonies, I delight. Or your translation may say, I rejoice in following your statutes, your testimonies. For this psalmist, it brings the same joy the way riches and wealth would. But of course, we know God's word and knowing him is much better than all the wealth in the world. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom speaks to God's people and says, take my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, because wisdom is better than jewels. All that you may desire cannot compare with her. The hope of looking at this psalm is that we would build delight in God's word in our lives. Because there's nothing else that you can think of, you can wish for, or desire that can bring as much delight and joy as knowing God in his word. Now maybe that sounds a little absurd to you. Maybe you think, I don't know, Pastor, there's some things I could think about that if I had would bring me a lot more delight. Well, l- let, me, let me challenge what you want to find delight in. Stephen Uriel says it this way, we live in a world that's unable to meet our deepest thirst because our souls are spiritual, so material things cannot ultimately satisfy them. Our soul is eternal. Temporal things, things that do not last, cannot satisfy it. Our soul is exceptional, and so trivial little things cannot satisfy it. Yet, what does the world around us offer? You guessed it, material, temporal, trivial. It offers things that are here, things that we can hold, but things that will not last. Uh, I don't have this here, but I'm thinking about it. Something new that I've really been enjoying is, uh, and new-ish to me is I've been getting really into board games, I like playing board games with my my wife and, and family and friends. And so I love hearing about something new and I get it and I get this box and I get it out and we set it up and we play. And we may have a great time. We may play it a bunch and a bunch. But do you know what happens over time? Over time, we play it a little bit less. Over time, it goes up on the shelf. Over time, I stack about five more on top of it. And then every so often, get it out again. And yeah, that's a lot of fun. But it's just a box full of little plastic pieces. It's not gonna last forever. And that flash of joy that I have also Doesn't last forever. But what I hope we see as we go through this psalm is that we see God's word as beautiful, as something that does last because it tells us about the God who lives and reigns forever. And may that motivate our obedience to Him. So let me ask you does God's word fill you with joy? Does it change your actions? And if not, the author tells us what we can do about that. In verse 15, he says, then meditate, study, reflect on God's word and ways, fix your eyes on it, consider, contemplate, regard what God does and who he is. Like memorization, we do this all the time. You may say, pastor, I don't meditate. I don't sit and go um in a corner. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about thinking about something deeply. We think about things that we care about. you say, I'm not somebody who thinks a whole lot. Oh, Okay, but you still take time to think about some things, to plan out some things. Direct some of that energy to looking at God, considering the beauty that's to be found in his word. Change your perspective on what God's word is. And Spurgeon says, a miser often returns to look at his treasure. And so the devout believer, by frequent meditation, thinking about God's word, he turns over the priceless wealth which he's discovered in the book of the Lord. There is priceless wealth to be found here, thinking about, dwelling on what God has said. And so finally, the psalmist just says, that's what he does. He says, I delight God in your decrees and statutes, and so I will not forget or neglect your word. And oh, friends, maybe you don't believe me, but there is so much to delight in, in God's word and that's why we have this time to go through this book. I hope we'll unveil you'll discover more ways that you can delight in what scripture has said. Again Spurgeon there is in God whatever your soul needs in Christ Jesus there is exactly what your soul is panting for. Now if you're counting at home or you're playing some Uh, non-alcoholic drinking game with Pastor John's sermons. Yes, that's four Spurgeon quotes in one sermon. I'm aware of that. I'm not ignorant of that fact. But as I was reading the things that he was writing about this, I think he was developing the same heart that the psalmist had to think deeply in and rejoice over God's word. But let me end with, with a different quote. This one is from the organization Gideons International. They often put Bibles in hotel rooms or give out little New Testaments, and some of their Bibles have this quote in them. It's in a larger quote, but this is what it says. The Bible should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. So read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure." I don't know who wrote that, but that's really good right there. God's Word is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. So let's bring it home to us. We're to walk with God by obeying His Word. We do that by storing it up in our heart and delighting in Him. That can only happen if we know Him through Jesus Christ. If We've turned from sin and believed in Him. That's the only way that process can even start. And so if you don't know him, I would encourage you to talk to someone about that. Reach out to me about how can I know God through Jesus. But if you claim to know him, are you following him? Are you walking in his word? Is he shaping you into his image? Are you delighting in his word? They say, okay, pastor, I see I should do that, but how do I do it? Well, spend time with him. Read his word. Listen to it. Study it. Think about it memorize it, store it up, and then live it out, share it with others. In just a minute, we're actually going to take time to do a a profound way to delight in God's Word. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's us delighting in what Scripture has told us about our Savior. Now, sometimes we think of it as, oh, which is something we do every so often at, at the end of the service. But no, think of it this way. By Eating, yes, just a cracker. Drinking, yes, just a cup. We are delighting in what God has said to us about who Jesus is. So we will delight in him, but before we do that, we will praise him in song because he is worthy of delight and praise.